0: Morning Central, I find it convenient that Adam was out this Sunday, so I get stuck with the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, so he got to preach on fathers and, you know, feel good stuff. Now, Now we are, if you're a visitor, we're really glad that you're here, we're really honored that you chose to be with us this morning and hope that you feel very welcome. We are studying this year and next year through the book of Mark. And we actually haven't been in Mark a while because from Mother's Day to Father's Day, we did a, a series on the family. And actually, the last time we did Mark was when I spoke in April. So it's been a minute. Um, but we're back in Mark. So this is our, our first, first lesson back in a while. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's a good one. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a tough one. When, when I was a junior in college at Freed Hardeman, I took a class called Critical Introduction to the Old Testament. Um, it was tough. It was hard. The professor was um, Justin Rogers, and he's actually going to be here this summer for our summer series. He's an extremely intelligent, um, super solid guy. I have a lot of respect for him. In that class, we had to write a research paper, um, and mine was over the flood. And so I had to write like 15, 20 pages on the flood. And man, I, I worked hard on that paper, and I read it, reread it, edited it, and did everything you're supposed to do. I turned it in. I felt great about this paper. I get the paper back a week or two later, and uh, Justin had given me a good grade. I was like, yes, I passed. But he had written on the front of it, read your Bible. i like, read my Bible? I, I did. What do you think I did to write this paper? I read a lot of things to write this paper. So I flipped through it, and somewhere in there, I was talking about Noah. And y'all know the mountain that Noah's Ark rested on? Mount Ararat. That's what I put. It, it wasn't Mount Ararat. The Bible says in Genesis, one of the mountains of Ararat, not Mount Ararat. When your professor says, oh, your, your paper was fine. It wasn't grammar. It wasn't research. It's just that you didn't read your Bible enough. You feel about this small. That is how I kind of feel giving this sermon. Um, I have read so much about this topic. It's a, it's a tough one. It's one we don't like to talk about. And to give this topic, you kind of feel about this small to give it. And so I don't think that I have everything figured out on this topic. I'll be honest with you. I I want to be humble enough to tell you that I'm not an expert on the Holy Spirit. I'm not an expert on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I'm not an expert on Mark. Um, But I do hope that I communicate truth and humility this morning in what I have studied. So that's kind of where I I want to start this morning. If you do have your Bibles, hopefully you're in Mark chapter 3. We're going to be in Mark 3, but also we're going to be in Matthew 12 as well. We're going to be in those passages a lot this morning. They're both the same account. Uh, Matthew, though, adds some extra details that I think are quite helpful in our study of this passage. So we've already read Mark chapter 3. I'm going to go ahead and read Matthew chapter 12, verses 22-32, to give you kind of the other, the other perspective of this story. Matthew 12, verse 22 and following says, Then a demon, oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed, and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So as you read this passage, the very the From the onset, there is an accusation made by the scribes and the Pharisees. This is not the first time that Jesus has been casting out demons, right? As we studied Mark, it's fascinated me. I had never realized how much that it talks about, you know, the spiritual realm and and demons and how much Jesus did with them. But Jesus has been showing his power multiple times over demons, over spiritual forces. But more people are starting to catch on who this Jesus might be. They say, is he really the son of David? The prophecies of the Messiah are starting to be recalled by these people. They've grown up with it, and they're starting to attribute them to Jesus now. They're starting to associate them with Jesus. Is he the promised Messiah? Is he the king of the Jews that has come to set up his kingdom? And, of course, you had some people who were convinced he was. You had some people who were probably a little on the fence. They were unsure. But you also had those who were totally convinced that Jesus was not the Messiah, including the scribes and the Pharisees the fact that other people were starting to see Jesus as the Messiah was becoming a problem for the Pharisees. Because if Jesus was the Messiah, they had to live like he wanted them to live. They had to follow him. They had to listen to him. The problem was they disagreed with him on a lot of things. And they hated what he stood for and what he taught. So Jesus could not be the Messiah. So therefore, when the people began wondering, is Jesus this Messiah? The scribes and Pharisees had to quickly convince people that he was not. One major problem. Jesus' miracles were undeniable. Notice that in both of these passages, in Mark and Matthew, the Pharisees never once challenged that Jesus actually did a miracle. They don't question that. Everyone knows that it happened. It was clear to them and the people. It was clear that Jesus had authority over demons and over the spiritual realm. So they had to come up with something else. They, they couldn't just say, he's not actually doing that. He looks like it, but he's not actually. Everyone knew that he was. The accusation that they came up with instead was at face value, pretty convincing, a pretty terrible accusation about Jesus. They said, Jesus is using the power of Satan, of Beelzebub, the prince of demons, to actually cast out demons. They couldn't deny the fact that miracles had occurred. So instead of going after the miracles... They went after the source. They went after Jesus. The Messiah didn't do this. This is the servant of Satan. If you study the life of Christ, you'll find that Jesus doesn't always respond to every negative thing said about him. A lot of things that are said to him are not worth his time, and so he just moves on. He ignores it. But this accusation is one he doesn't ignore. In fact, it draws from Jesus one of the strongest replies that we read about in Scripture. And so Jesus carries on with his rebuttal. First, Jesus starts with a logical rebuttal. Those of you who are fans of logic, I think this is a very fascinating scripture, a very fun scripture. I love the way Mark puts it. Jesus says, "How can Satan cast out Satan? Satan's whole goal is to hurt God. Um, he he wants to steal souls away from people, and one of the ways that he did or away from God. And one of the ways that he did that is by demon possession in Jesus' time." Why would Satan go through all the trouble of having his demons, you know, sending his demons out to possess people, only to send someone else out to cast out those same demons? That doesn't make sense. That would mean that Satan had turned against himself, and his kingdom was divided. That would make no sense. Why? Because Satan is not an idiot. You can actually hear, I think, Jesus here saying, you know, guys, Satan isn't stupid. But what you just said is, It makes no sense. Why would Jesus cast out demons by the power of the prince of demons, Satan himself, and undo everything Satan has been working on? In a few short sentences, Jesus reveals to the people there and to us that what might have been a pretty convincing accusation, a pretty convincing argument, was really just a reactionary accusation based on jealousy, on hatred, on a hardness of heart, rather than truth and logic. But Jesus wasn't done either. If you're in Matthew 12, look at verse 27. He asks the disciples, or he asks the Pharisees, how did their disciples cast out demons? Apparently, at the time, there were some disciples, some followers of the Pharisees, who were supposedly casting out demons. And if Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan, it follows, logically, that they would have to have to have been doing it by the power of Satan, too. Now, I don't think that these disciples were really casting out demons, and I don't think Jesus is saying that they actually are, but I think he is showing the hypocrisy in the Pharisees when they believed one group casting out demons was doing it by the power of God, and the other group, Jesus, doing the exact same thing, was doing it by the power of Satan. Jesus was saying, showing them they can't have it both ways. Either we're both doing it by the power of Satan, or we're both doing it by the power of God. But Jesus isn't done yet. After blowing up their accusation with logical reasoning, Jesus turns to a more spiritual reply. In Matthew 12, 28, this is this is a crucial verse, I think, in this whole, this whole context, Jesus reveals that it wasn't the power of Satan that allowed him to cast out demons. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. And if that is true, spoiler alert, it is, then the kingdom of God is almost here. I think this verse, in one way, is a prophecy about Pentecost when the church, the kingdom of God, began and the Holy Spirit um, empowered the early church. But in a more immediate way, this verse is going to have some terrifying implications for the Pharisees. Before Jesus gets there, he asserts one more spiritual truth. He talks about this house, the strong man, and breaking into the strong man's house. to break into someone's house, to, to take their possessions. While they're still in there, you need to be stronger than the person in the house, right? Simple logic. The strong man is Satan. The house is the world, and the possessions are people. Jesus was on a mission to reclaim lost souls for the kingdom of God, the ones that were stolen by Satan. And just like you can't steal back something from a person who's stronger than you, Jesus could only win back lost souls if he was stronger than Satan. If he was stronger than the domain of darkness. So, what is Jesus saying? Not only is he casting out demons, not only is he doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit, not only is the kingdom of God near, but in doing so, Jesus is announcing and displaying his power over Satan. Jesus is winning, and he wants everyone to know about it. And in a little bit, through his death on the cross, Jesus is going to be ultimately victorious. That victory will be secured and assured on the cross like I said earlier I find it fascinating how much about spiritual warfare is in the book of Mark there are evil spiritual forces trying to gain control of your heart of my heart and they're real Satan is real his demons are real and Satan is neither stupid nor lazy and nothing motivates him more than a faithful Christian and trying to tempt and lie to you but we have nothing to fear because Jesus makes it clear he is stronger Jesus is and will continue to be victorious over Satan. Jesus' power to protect our hearts is stronger than Satan's power to tempt our hearts. Jesus' power to reclaim our hearts is stronger than Satan's power to retain our hearts. But Jesus won't reclaim and protect your heart for you. He gives you a choice. We have to choose who controls our heart. Because someone does. It's not us. It's either God or it's Satan kingdom of God is here. And the fact that you're listening to me means that you know a little bit about the power of the Holy Spirit at work through Jesus. And so it's your choice. Will you let Satan harden and ultimately destroy your heart or you let Jesus soften and ultimately save your heart? And then we get to the fun part of the story. We had this accusation, we had Jesus' logical and spiritual rebuttal, and then we get to the implication the pharisees and the scribes jesus makes it very clear that because of what the scribes and the pharisees have said due to that accusation they have blasphemed against the holy spirit and that is a sin for which there is no forgiveness Ooh. what do you do with that that's a tough one right before your mind starts racing i just want to break it down because i think that's the easiest way to understand this passage let's break it down what this means. So let's start. Very basic. What is blasphemy? A couple people kind of wrote their description of blasphemy. I think it's very well put. One guy wrote it extremely basic. He said, it is words spoken against God or man. I think that's a, that's a good starting point, but I think there's a little bit more to it. Another author I read describes blasphemy as any word or act which detracts from the power and glory of God. Blasphemy is an intentional effort through in everyone's words and actions to disrespect, diminish, and denounce God. So if you understand what blasphemy is, the next logical question as you study this is what was the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What did they do that was so bad, that was so wrong? This is where in some things I've read, in some sermons I've heard or watched, that I've noticed a lot of people tend to dance around it. Now I'm not claiming to be an expert. But I do think that there is a very simple answer that is maybe hard for us to swallow. But if you read this passage honestly, the only answer that is, explains this question is that the scribes and Pharisees blasphemed the Holy Spirit by attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan when they knew otherwise. Matthew 12:28, Jesus is telling them that they aren't just rejecting him. They're disrespecting, diminishing, and denouncing the work of the Holy Spirit. By claiming what the Holy Spirit did to be evil, deceitful, and sinful, because it's really Satan. Now, this is more than just a simple misunderstanding, right? People misunderstood Jesus all the time. And he didn't go around saying that, that you committed an unforgivable sin. Matthew 14, verses 26 to 27, a very familiar passage, right? The, the apostles are on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, that's Jesus, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost and they cried out in fear but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying you have committed the blasphemy of the holy spirit now what did Jesus say take heart it's i do not be afraid the disciples made an honest mistake they were too immature in their faith to recognize Jesus and so when they saw his power on display they immediately attributed it to either just a you know at best a spiritual phantom or at worst an evil spirit and with even consider how afraid they were, I tend to think it might have been the latter. But Jesus didn't call them out and say, You've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. You cannot be forgiven. Jesus knows it was a misunderstanding coming from ignorance, coming from immaturity. And he comforts them, and he reveals to them the truth. It's me. It's Jesus. Don't be afraid. Had the Pharisees' accusation been from a place of ignorance or immaturity, no doubt Jesus would have responded, I think, in a similar way as the disciples. The reason the Pharisees have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit is because they know better. They were the most educated Jews of their time. They knew the prophecies of the Messiah better than anyone, and they knew that Jesus was fulfilling every single one of those prophecies. They knew he was performing miracles that were only possible with the power of the Holy Spirit, and they still attributed it to Satan. Their hearts were so hard that when they knew the truth, When they saw the truth before their very eyes, they still chose to reject it. They still chose to reject the Holy Spirit and his work. And Jesus calls that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The logical next question as you study this passage is, all right, I don't want to do that. So how does the Holy Spirit work today? This is a whole other sermon, right? We could spend a whole quarter on this topic. But there are two big ways Scripture reveals that the Holy Spirit works today. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20-21 through 21. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Just as the work and power of the Holy Spirit was seen through the casting out of demons, in Mark 3, the work and power of the Holy Spirit are seen today in God's Word in the Bible. The Holy Spirit inspired the writings of Scripture by working through the men that wrote the Bible that we have today. And so the work and power of the Holy Spirit are clearly seen today through the Bible which helps us to know truth, which helps reveal our sins, and which shows us the path to salvation amongst a host of other things. There's another way that Scripture reveals the Holy Spirit works today. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul continues in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The work and the power of the Holy Spirit are also seen today in his indwelling of Christians. He is the seal of our salvation, the motivation for our faithfulness, and he empowers us to grow in Christ's likeness. So if that's what the Holy Spirit does today, there's one more question that we really only have when we read Matthew. Why is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit so much worse? Look back at Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to read verse 32. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So you can speak against Jesus and you'll be forgiven, but you can't speak against the Holy Spirit. I mean, talk bad about Jesus. That seems pretty bad to me. And it is. I mean, it's a sin. But why is speaking against the Holy Spirit so much worse? This is where I've, I've had to study a lot and I've learned a lot recently. As a Christian, our goal is to know the Father, is to get to God, to get to be with Him in heaven one day. How do you get to know the Father? John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We cannot know God. We cannot be with God if it wasn't for Jesus. But how do you know Jesus? john 14 verse 26 but the helper the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that i have said to you the holy spirit is how we know jesus who is then how we know the father now john 14 that promise the supernatural part of it is to the apostles that's not to us we're not going to have some Miraculous recollection of knowledge, and all of a sudden learn all the truth. We have to work at that, we have to study for ourselves. But the Holy Spirit still reveals all the truth to us through the Bible. We would not be able to learn about Jesus without the Holy Spirit's work through the scriptures and without the Holy Spirit's work through Christians who are a living example of who Jesus is. You cannot know Jesus without the Holy Spirit. If you reject Jesus, heaven forbid, if you reject Jesus. You still have the Holy Spirit to teach you who he is. But if you reject the Holy Spirit, you have rejected the last person left to show you who God is, who Jesus is. There's no one left to teach you. God the Father sent his Son to die for us so that we could go to heaven. Jesus left the Holy Spirit to show us what he did through the Word, to show us who he is through other Christians so that we could go to heaven. If you reject the Holy Spirit, you have rejected the last person capable of showing you who Jesus and the Father are. That's why rejecting the Holy Spirit is so much worse. Then we get to the golden question, the last one you have to tackle with this passage. Is this sin really unforgivable? This is the fun one. We all know John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. All sin. So the Bible seems to contradict itself. We know that Jesus promises to forgive all of our sins when we accept his grace through faith, and yet the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is unforgivable? Is it really unforgivable? The short answer is yes. It is, but maybe not for the reasons we always think, and it's certainly not a contradiction of 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. When someone blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, their hearts are so hard that they are rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit because they see it as evil, wrong, undesirable, and unwanted. Today, that would be rejecting the Holy Spirit's work through the Word and through other Christians. It would be rejecting the Bible and rejecting Christians. Because they're evil. They're wrong. I don't want them. I don't desire them. When someone rejects the Bible, when someone rejects Christians, and doesn't want anything to do with God, they will never know Jesus. Because the Bible and other Christians are how we get to know Jesus. Nor will they see their sin, or see their need for repentance and forgiveness. When someone's heart becomes that hard, they will not repent. They will not seek out faith in God, because they don't want to. And when someone refuses to have faith, they cut themselves, they choose to cut themselves off from the only way God has given us to receive his grace and his forgiveness. When someone chooses, themselves chooses, to cut themselves off from forgiveness, they are in every respect unforgivable and by implication have committed an unforgivable sin. But hear me out. It is not that God's grace is not sufficient. It's not that God's grace is weak or can't forgive you. It will. He will forgive you. The problem is that those who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit have developed such a hard heart that they have no desire to repent. They have no desire to come back to God. They have chosen to put themselves out of God's grace. And God has said he will not forgive those sins as long as you remain in that condition. The weakness is not in God's grace. It's in our faith. And God has asked us, commanded us to repent, to come to Christ through baptism in order to receive forgiveness. And if you intentionally choose not to, to reject the work of the Holy Spirit through his word and his, his people, that sin can't be forgiven as long as you remain in that state. This is a dense sermon. I sh- I'll be honest, I struggled. I told Sherry, I was like, I'm having a hard time with this one. But what does it mean? What, what is the application? What can we take home? A few, a few questions to ask yourself. Are you rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit by rejecting God's Word? Are you rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit by rejecting God's people? Do you refuse to have anything to do with the inspired Word of God and the indwelled people of God? And good news for you, you can answer this, but I think I can answer it for you. You're in this room. I think the answer is no. The fact that you are with God's people, whether you you believe in God or not, the fact that you're listening to God's word is a good sign, right? I, I don't think that we're committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit simply by being here today. And a lot of people worry that what if I commit the sin accidentally? I um, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I never go to heaven. I've read this many times, and I, and I think it's perfectly said. If you're worried about committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you're not committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's an intentional choice to reject God, to have nothing to do with his word or his people when you know otherwise. So, maybe a question that maybe hits home more for us. Do you call evil good and good evil? That's what the Pharisees did. They called the Holy Spirit's work evil. Satan is a master deceiver. He loves to confuse good and evil in our minds. Have you bought into his lies? Because let's be clear, sin is evil, righteousness is good, homosexuality is evil, marriage according to God's plan is good, viewing church as a checkbox where you only show up on Sunday mornings and that's the extent of your Christianity is wrong, it's evil, but living a life on mission for God's kingdom where church attendance is just the tip of the iceberg of how you live out your faith, that's good. The Pharisees called what was good, what was ordained by God as evil. Let's not make that mistake. And finally, all sins can be forgiven. But don't underestimate the point of no return in your heart. Anybody, no matter how far gone, can come back to faith in God. Even if you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And God in all of his grace and forgiveness, when you come back to him, when you become a Christian, when you ask for forgiveness, when you're baptized, will forgive you. That is an assurance. That is a promise. He's faithful and just to forgive us. But the reality, the the hard reality, is that there are some people who have chosen sin for so long, who love sin so much, and whose hearts are so hard that they will never choose to come back to God. It isn't that they can't be forgiven. It's that they won't ever choose to ask for forgiveness to come back to God, to be his child. And it's our job to still reach out to them, to still do everything we can to bring them back to God. But it's ultimately their choice. And some people never choose to come back. But that can't affect your choice. That can't affect my choice. So this morning, how is your heart? How is your heart doing? Will you let Satan harden and ultimately destroy your heart? Or will you let Jesus soften and ultimately save your heart? It's your choice. Is your faith more than just morning? Is your faith lived out through your week, through your life, through the way you treat your family and others, through the way you respond to God's word, through the way you you treat your, your fellow Christians? I can't answer that question. Only you can. But I pray that you are letting God soften and break your heart every day to be more like his son, to be more in step with his spirit. It's a tough subject, a tough subject. Um, it's, it's hard to think about that there are those who won't choose to come back. But we don't have to be that way. We can choose to come back to God. If you want to make that choice to come back to him, or if you need encouragement, please come as we stand and we sing.